welcome back to the MIT Press Podcast. In this, the first podcast of 2021, we'll be hearing a discussion between Damon Krakowski and Rose Simpson about the latter's memoir, Muse, Odalis, Can Maiden, A Girl's Life in the Incredible String Band, publishing with Strange Tractor Press later this month. In her book, Rose details her life as part of the Incredible String Band, a psychedelic folk band formed in 1966 who were hugely influential within the counterculture and popular music culture more broadly. The band produced 12 studio albums and played across the world, including at Woodstock and venues such as the Royal Festival Hall, the Albert Hall and the Barbican. Speaking with Rose today will be Damon Krakowski, who is a musician, poet and writer. He was a member of the band Galaxy 500 and the psychedelic rock band Magic Hour and he is now half of the psychedelic folk duo Damon and Naomi. He has authored two books published by the MIT Press named The New Analogue and Ways of Hearing, the former being adapted from his hugely successful podcast of the same name. With introductions out of the way, I'll hand over to Damon and Rose. Okay, lovely to meet you, Rose. I'm delighted. I, I absolutely love the book. I think it's fantastic. And uh, thank you for talking to me about it today. My pleasure. If I can just dive in, I wanted to first just talk to you about the title. It's so striking. If you could tell me anything about how you came up with that or what it means to you. I was just trying to think what, what I saw myself as at the time and in using the words that come naturally to me. Because although I can see that these are not the obvious words for a lot of people. They are for me. And the only difference was it was really strange. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, it was really strange because the original title that I wanted to go with, and I still like better for all sorts of reasons, was Muse Oddly Squaw, using specifically the word squaw, knowing what it meant. And not because I was stupid and didn't realise all the implications of squall, but I also knew that there was a whole debate about from Native American women reclaiming the word because they, you know, because it's not it's not a colonialist word. You know, it is it is it is their word and they wanted to have it back. And but for me, it for me, it was also tied in with a time because for me, that was a very positive image. It was when we regarded it which says something about us then, of course, uh, we regarded it as a positive image, but visually partly, you know, the, the, the plaits and the leather and the, yeah, we didn't, we didn't go so much about the dragging through the mud and all that, but, you know, we regarded it as a positive image, but because it became a debate. When you're talking about the title of a fairly trivial book in a way, it's not the time to have academic debates about squall you know so I so changed it that's all but you say reclaim for squall and I think because I took the title that way too that you're reclaiming these words in some ways because as you say they're the words that come naturally to you but they're also words that they're all from the outside looking at a woman from that period and it's an interesting reclamation I think of of these words as positions of power really of your role that was not at all passive but was enormously powerful yeah for me then they were and you know i'm i'm a person from that time you know and and it doesn't mean that i don't want to keep i want to know what people now are saying but my responses are still from then and still for me looking back on it i regarded amuse as something 
quite wonderful that it would inspire some work you know Odalisk was kind of kind of parody in a way because it was also to do it was visual there were visual images for me more visual than anything else because there was so much of that you know we, we wanted to we weren't forced to we wanted to be look exotic and lie around on cushions in a way be passive we definitely chose passivity but it was a choice and then handmaiden squaw whichever because that was a forceful image it was sort of an image of doing something it wasn't dominant but it was certainly doing it was yes to do with doing the passivity as a choice is fascinating i, I feel that it also seems characteristic of your of your your stance as a writer as well in a way it's very novelistic i found the book position is you know inside and outside and it has this remarkable sense of detachment but also of this tremendous power of your role and the description of your role in all these events. And that to me, when you say passivity is a choice, I feel like it, it touches on that. I don't know if that makes sense for you. Yeah, it does. And it also makes me question myself all the time. But that's, that's also part of it almost. It's like I don't want to settle in one place. And I didn't want to settle in one place with the writing. I wanted to leave it hanging in a way. And, and I'm willing that people make negative judgments about it. I'm willing that other women see it as, I don't know, conniving with the patriarchy or whatever phrase you want to use. I'm willing to accept that because what I was writing, I'm not writing an academic debate. I'm writing what it felt to be that person then as much as you ever can. I mean, I, you can't strip out the years after and you can't strip out all the things that you've accrued through those years. But there's only people who were there and who were that woman who can write that book. And that's the only reason it's worth doing. Mm. I feel like it's unlike any other portrait of, from the time that I've read. As a fan of the music and of much of the music from the period, I've read a lot of rock books, of course, and memoirs. But I really feel your book is unique in part because it's from the point of view of a woman and because of your power as a writer to express that very complex uh, role that you that you played. I feel it's it's quite different than you know you don't strike the pose of a rock hero, which is the, the quite. <laughs> oh, <I wish>. <laughs> <laughs> That's much of what we get, you know, from uh, certainly from the male from the male uh, memoirs and the perspective of the of the period, and even from the journalists who write about it, because of course they're very complicit in building up that kind of uh, heroic which typically goes to the men, although some women from the period have also written yeah. about themselves in that same way. But again, you, you express this very complex role that you play in all these scenes, and I just I really, I really, I was so taken. I just felt like I couldn't put the book down, truly. <laughs> oh, great. That's wonderful. Yeah. But to me, it's also, it's very novelistic. As I said, I, there's this remarkable, among so many passages I could quote, but there's something you say fairly early in the book about when you're joining the band or, or joining the life of the band. And you say, I, I knew this was not likely to be a permanent way of life for me, you say, as you're, of course, embarking on it. That itself is this kind of remarkable admission, I feel, in some ways for what would be a remarkable admission for a lot of other musicians. And yet, we, I think we all know that feeling. But that yeah, well, was, that's why I feel I was lucky. I feel I was lucky in that it was in that position that I could think that from the start. But I tend to think I feel it anyway. 
always. <laughs> I never quite see anything. I I haven't really got a very good grasp on a way of life, I'm afraid. <laughs> but I knew that wasn't it because the way I defined it was that all these people were musicians and I definitely wasn't one in the way I defined it. And yet you you were and are. I mean, don't you think? It's as much as anyone could lay claim to being a musician. No, I don't because not what a musician looks like to me, looked like then, because I'd never seen really one before, you know. But what it looked like to me then was it's that person that gets up in the morning and the first thing that they need to have, they need to see where is the guitar, where whatever it is, the drum, whatever it is. And and somehow they have to have that in their day. And And maybe if they can't be playing it, they've got to be listening to it. And I never had that and I still don't have it. And... The thing, I suppose it, it came to me one day, it really was strange, and I was sitting at a table, and I remember looking at the sauce bottle. It was a Lee and Perrin sauce bottle, it was on the table, and, and I felt I was so sort of deprived of words that I, I was reading the sauce bottle label and then turning it round and reading the other side, and I suddenly thought, oh yeah, what I've got to have, I've got to have something that I can read, you know, mm. just like these people here have got to have something they can play and listen to. The thing that I hang my life on is a different thing. I hear you. That's, that's amazing. I'll just quibble with you a little about the musician part because I feel this, there's this wonderful way that you describe that the band was a way of life and that the people listening to the band also were listening for that or came to see the band perform, wanted to sort of see this way of life enacted or recorded. And, um, you know, I came into to music post-punk rock where those divisions were very deliberately knocked down. So, so it was meant to be uh, a way of life was yeah. you know, the life of the musician. So I was sort of initiated into the idea of being a musician as a way of life in that yeah. sense. And I loved hearing you describe that from this period of music that was different uh, in that there were many professionals in the, in the traditional sense of professional musicians involved. Obviously, Robin Williamson and Mike Herron, who's so supremely skillful and talented, and so many of your contemporaries of which season have the same ability, Sandy Denny and Richard Thompson. And I understand what you mean. And I don't put myself in, in their ranks as a musician either. And yet, I felt quite comfortable from the beginning calling myself a musician, even if I put the, the instruments away for months at a time. And I think that maybe because of... of a punk or maybe just something something different in my own sensibility. But anyway, to me, uh, you are a musician and, as well as a writer. And But your writing is is remarkable. So it's so interesting to me to have, hear you reading the Worcestershire sauce bottle. It makes complete sense. Uh, but also you tell us how you start, uh, you're reading literature at university when you start with the band. And then, of course, you've returned to it later in life, correct? And that's something I want to ask you about was, was now when you went back and you got a, a PhD. Is it in German literature? Is that correct? Yes. Yes. What specialty, what, <laughs> what, what took you back to that now? I think it was, again, when I retired, this great thing, I mean, I've never really, it's to do with economics as well, you know, just like bands are always to do with economics, but so is life. And it was only when I retired and got this wonderful thing called a state pension. <laughs> <laughs> which is it's not wonderful but you know it's like security it's a kind of security and then I thought oh fantastic I can now sit back and think 
what did I want to do with my life? Because I don't have to be scrabbling about the next day or the next thing, you know. Suddenly I can sit back and kind of look upon it from, from this great age. And, and I thought well, when I was 18, 18 seemed a, a good time because it's a kind of break between being a child and being a grown-up. When I was 18, what did I think I would like to do? And I didn't have any clear ideas of what I would like to do, but I looked at people that I, I thought were really cool. And the people I really admired were, were these people who could speak European languages, not just like hesitatingly, but who could really speak them, who could read them and who could kind of live in a European language. That was, there was other things I enjoyed, but that was one of the things I really admired because it seemed to open such a big world. And I kind of knew that my world was a really small one. I wanted to throw the doors back. And so at 18, so at 60 in a way, and I wanted to do that again. I wanted to open all those doors and, and saw the way to it was through languages. And I knew French from school and I'd sort of kept it up a bit reading the odd book now and again, you know. And then we done German, and it was, uh, <laughs> and it was everything in my life happens by accident. So I did this. I started again with a first degree in French and German, which was strange, but it's good, you know, because it challenges you. I mean, it challenges you when you're six to sit in a class of eighteen-year-olds, you know, and have to do these sort of dialogues, uncomfortable dialogues that you do, you know. But that was it. Was okay, and 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 then I still had the pleasure of of reading the stuff, reading the literature that went with it. And then I thought, well, I'd like to keep going with this. You know, I really liked it. And then, of course, so the obvious way to keep going is you do research. And I wasn't going to leave Aberystwyth because that would have given me other problems where to live and things like that. So I had a choice between French or German. And it just so happened that the only person who, who was willing to take this on <laughs> did German. So, right, that's it. I'm going to do German. Okay. And, and it was all—it was just entirely random. So I thought, you know, just that. And so scrabbling around, what would I like to do? Well, that sounds interesting. I think I'll do that. And that's how it came. And I loved it. I really loved it. And it, was it a particular period of, of German yeah, literature? Was it was. Uh, I did two two women who had written um, two popular novelists of Weimar Germany. Well, German speaking, um, and one was Vicky Baum, who ended up. In Hollywood, writing Grand Hotel and film ah, writer in Hollywood. Yeah. One was her, and obviously she was of Jewish ethnicity. She was in from born in Vienna, but she was of Jewish ethnicity, and her books were therefore burnt. And she she'd left before she'd left before that because Hollywood was the attraction, you know. And lucky for her, just in time. And the other was an, a woman called Ina Zeidel who ended up on the list of Hitler's favourite authors, yeah. which was, but the way I know he just, there were, I more or less put a pin in a list of, you know, women who'd written that time. And I started to read them. And I thought, these women are saying the same thing. You know, they're writing the novels about the same ideas, the same ideals, the same wishes, the same utopias. What happened? Sort of what yeah. happened then that one ended up, would have ended up, dead you know there's no two ways and the other ended up a bit of a star of a star of the third reich you know and and so how did this happen and then that's what sort of hooked me and it still hooks me and i'm still but now it's moved on a step because now i see i said and as, as i continue to read i thought 
oh my God, they're saying all the things that I said on that sitting there in the mud at Woodstock, you know, these two women are saying all these things, you know, they're doing circle dancing on mountains and throwing off their clothes. Where is this? You know, that's sort of the way we go back. I was just hooked on it and I really loved it. That sounds fascinating. I know, I know the Hollywood screenwriter, but not the other writer. Was she actually a national socialist? Did she? Did she no. Join? No. No. She just was, was taken up, just taken up by them. But no, what? Yes, yeah, taken up by them. I'm just starting to write about that really because because that would have that could have been me. I mean that no not with her not with her her she had a totally she was very sort of upper middle class educated intelligentsia everything. Her uncle was the curator of the Kaiser's art collection. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, they were, they were a high-flying family. So that is entirely different. But this way that you go through your life and you have to make equivocations and you have to do things that you're not entirely happy with. And, and it was sort of on that basis. But when, you know, when your brother-in-law and when your son-in-law uh, are whipped off to concentra- concentration camps, what do you do? You keep your head down and write something that is not... It is acceptable then, it, not mm-hmm. not ideal, not propaganda, although she did write a hilarious propaganda book <laughs> called Letters from uh, Letters from the Girls Who Were Helping with the Communications for the Army. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is like a propaganda in the sense that all these letters were sort of saying, dear mother, I'm having a wonderful time here with you. You know, the soldiers are terribly polite and I go to church every Sunday. <laughs> To encourage middle class mothers to allow their girls to join up. <laughs> so that was that was as far as the propaganda went, really. You know, it wasn't nasty. Um, there's all there's a million reasons why this there's a million tales and stories why this is all fascinating and entertaining. Mm. But that's not what we're talking about, but that's why. Oh no, but it is worth I mean I I, I love this image of, of your community with them from your experience at Woodstock. I mean that's that's incredible, but it it makes sense to me intuitively in a lot of ways. I mean, for one, there's the, you know, that period of between the wars was connected to the 60s, I think, in some ways, in its yeah. overturning of prior yeah. orders and, yeah. uh, and yeah. the po- post-World War One and post-World War Two. You, you write so eloquently about growing up in the post-war in Britain and the way that that influenced all of you involved in the yes. band and your whole milieu, which I found fascinating. So there's that. But then there's also, I feel, and you know, this, this might sound trite to some people, but because I know what it's like to be on the road, and you write so wonderfully about that, too, in a way that I recognized, uh, you know, just from my own experience so well, and, and that I haven't seen described in, in the way you did. But that is not unrelated to the crazy circumstances that people are thrown in through political revolutions and, and even war. And I know that sounds trite, but it, it isn't it to isn't, me. It's right? real. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To me, it's what I feel, and it, and it's all to do with that's part of the link between it, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. I look for what did I feel? What what do I what do I in, instinctively feel? I know what this means. I know implications of when I use words like instinct. I know. I, well, I don't know all the arguments, but I know a cloud of arguments behind that. Nevertheless, I come back to that's what it felt like. You know, and that's what I'm interested. What did it feel like to be these women at that time? And and when you jumped one way rather than another, if she'd done something dreadful, if she'd done something really, really awful to support the Third Reich, no, of course you would stand at a loss along a long distance. But when you're the stay of your family 
And you've got to start trying to get them out of the terrible scrapes they've all got themselves into, which they did. Then you compromise, you know, mm -hmm. and and it's the extent of the compromises. Th that's the moral point, and that's what I want to. You know, I need to find it out. <laughs> yeah, I think. I mean, there's a there's a risk taking and a sort of testing that goes on. I think in the life of a musician, that is a bit inevitable, or at least the type of music that that you play and that I play and yeah. the type of musician's life because neither of us joined orchestras and had a salary. There's that testing, I feel, that you're, you're so direct about in your memoir. When you're living on the road and circumstances can be very, very trying and they can be trying in all kinds of ways, physical, moral, ethical, um, yeah. as well as musical. And you put yourself in, in rather extreme situations. And I don't know if people understand that from the outside, but I feel like you really, you tell that story in a way that I recognize very clearly. And there are places in, in the book that are so powerful. I mean, you talk about what it's like in that sort of netherworld of being on the road when you kind of, you sort of reduce to your needs during the day and then you come alive on the stage at night in some ways. Yeah. And, but also the abandon that's required of that. And yeah. I, you know, you allowed yourself all, testing all kinds of ways of that abandon, which I think is also what you're describing from yeah. these women you were interested in the Weimar years. And of course, you, you went way further in those tests than I ever, <laughs> I ever did, <laughs> which I admire tremendously. And, and uh, you know, we all get to enjoy the, the stories and the music that resulted. But then, of course, you hit breaking points too, and you write so beautifully about them. I mean, the, toward the end of the book, when you talk about when you go in San Francisco and you buy a raw steak, you walk away yeah. from a macrobiotic restaurant yeah. with your bandmates and, and, the, and the whole circle and you go to buy a raw steak and eat it yeah. with your hands yeah. outside. Oh, it's wonderful. I, it, to me, it's like, it's still, I, can it, I can still think, it still comes to me, like the, the sheer liberation of that was just wonderful. And those images, it's just that image also... Certain images carry through, you know, into all sorts of other fields, and that's still to me. Not that I mean, if you gave me one now, I don't, I don't really like. I don't like the smell, but I, that liberation of it, that just breaking through, and it was wonderful. It, it, it's an amazing scene, and you're able to to walk away from the table and then go pursue that, and not just uh, not just think about it, but actually go to the butcher shop and buy the steak and then not just that gesture but sit in the park and devour it with your hands and then not just that but enjoy it and then yeah and then be able to reflect on it and write on it I just think that's a very unique that's a unique uh, <laughs> person that can do all the all the bits <laughs> of that action you know I feel like a lot of other people would do one part of that but not not all of it and including the reflection and being able to write about it now is is I'm lucky it's very special. It really uh, I is. just think I'm very lucky. <laughs> well, yeah, because a lot of people don't live to tell that tale who take it back. Well, that's far. why I'm so lucky. Yeah. I can't believe it. Mm -hmm. I'm over the moon. I'm just over the moon, you know, to, to, to be here, really, and, and just to have all those things. I think I just love being, I love being old. I don't want to, I can't, I also take it quite seriously. I, I, I think that's the right way to do it. I think it's really, 
not really sensible if you try and push it away all the time. You know, it's the way I really enjoyed being 25 and blow me, I'm going to enjoy being 75, (laughs) but in a very different way. I don't want to be a 74, I'm 74. I don't want to be a 74-year-old woman trying to be like a 24 or a 54 or in any other age. I want to do what my whole self, my body, everything now enables me to do which is different from all the other times it's mm. this moment you know a string band does come back to me such a lot really but it's this moment is different you know and and it is and i really want to have enjoy it just like talking to you this is this is a whole moment i could that i, I rejoice in a life you know it, it's so beautiful rose i'm very moved and but it's also to me also a description of making music in that you have to be in the moment literally i mean you can't not yeah. be as you know, and you placed yourself in very precarious situations musically in that there was improvisation involved, there was a lack of comfort on on different instruments, you had to just go with it, you were there on stage, you just had to be there and do what made sense. And in the recording studio too, I know it's the same situation. And that, that allowing yourself to be in that moment is crucial, I think, to playing to playing music, but I, I, I think what your book expresses and what you're expressing to me now so eloquently is also, it's, it's a way of life. I mean, it, it, it is that lack of division between the stage and the and, yeah. and off stage. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I suppose the other thing I sort of wanted to make clear in the book without actually saying it is some people can do this and some people can live in that uncomfortable space. Obviously, I'm one of them, and obviously, I enjoy it because the same is true of the German. But German is really not great, you know. It's really not good. <laughs> and to the extent that you think, you're at a conference full of people who are sort of super with Germanists, and you, you think for a moment, you say, "I have to stop and think." Oh, now I wonder if I've actually translated that right. <laughs> but I can live in that. I can live with that. Because if I did it wrong, well, never mind, you know. There we are. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's the nature of improvisation. I mean, even though mm-hmm. neither of us are jazz musicians, it's, I understand that because I understand that kind of risk-taking and, and where you uh, are. Yeah. And it's great, isn't it? It's fun. Mm-hmm. It's really It is fun. completely fun. It's also terrifying yeah. at times. Yes. Oh, and, sure. And then you are stuck with this situation of being um, not the expert and not the... Well, not the professional musician, as you as you were saying at the start, which I again will dispute with you, but um, but I understand what you mean. Just as a, yeah. you obviously are a Germanist, even though if you go to a conference, there'd be a whole lot of people talking about German literature that I would not want to to interview or read their books. <laughs> <laughs> so literature was through. I mean, has been through your through your life, obviously, and you are you are a, a gifted writer. To me, the way I was trying to understand it as I was reading the book was also this position, I think I mentioned it earlier, of being both inside and outside the role at the same time. So you're there very much living a life, but you are able to see it from the outside. And to me, that also is related to the title, because those are descriptions from the outside, as well as your own position. Yes, they are. And, you know, there there are moments in the book where you make that, that really clear. I love the way you discuss the other women who were the sort of the professional groupies, like the professional German scholars, who, you know, you describe them as being like courtesans at Versailles. You know, yeah. you, you could admire it 
for its professionalism and 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 yeah. how how good they were at it. And you could even put on the the mask in a way when you when you needed to sure. that wonderful sure. anecdote you have of being able to get in to see the Rolling Stones. At the oh, that was great, wasn't it? <laughs> what a success that was. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love that Joe Boyd had failed to get you tickets. Yes. That, that anecdote is so rich. <laughs> so to, to briefly tell it in my own way, it's that you're all in New York. You want to see the Stones. You ask Joe Boyd, who obviously has all the connections. He says he can't get, get tickets. And you pull it off rather than the guys in the band uh, through connections by just walking boldly into the plaza dressed appropriately for being able yes. to walk into the Stones room yeah. and, you, and you manage and they put you on the list and you go and who's there but Joe Boyd and he doesn't yeah. say anything <laughs> I know I know isn't that just I mean but that's just so typical that is so that was so typical of Joe I mean he was probably just fed up with us but I just wanted a night off <laughs> It's so typical of so many people in the music industry that I have known. And, yeah. um, you know, he didn't extend that courtesy to you, but of course you didn't need it. You got there better. You actually got to the band. But it's a brilliant anecdote. But also it, uh, that way that you, that you could see these women and uh, be one when you wanted to be, but also not be when you, when you didn't, in, in, just in terms of the dress and the attitude. Yeah. And, but to me, it's very novelistic. It's, it's that you're there, but you're also describing it and you're observing at the same time. And a, a, another beautiful thread through the book that I love is all the, the houses that you describe so vividly. They're all so remarkable. The Temple Cottage at the beginning, uh, the, Roman, the Roman camps. Yeah. And then in Wales, Penwarn. I'm going to read one passage for people who haven't not, not yet read the book just to give you a sense of your description, because this could come out of a, of a beautiful Victorian novel, really, where you're describing the house in Wales that you did not really like. It's a section called Rural, it begins Rural Decay, it's the subhead. In the old graystone house with its flaking paint and damp flagstones, was all the furniture and leftover crockery the farmer's wife wouldn't allow in her modern bungalow. Armchairs exhaled the dust of dead horses, their manes and tails stuffing the seats, Cushions whose feathers had been salvaged from Christmas geese failed to soften the wooden frame poking through where the fabric had rotted. Woodworms dropped their powdery remains onto the floor. In the kitchen, tables gave way at the joints, tops stained and cut by generations, along with an ancient cooker, a cold tap over a chipped enamel sink, and a plywood cupboard hanging tentatively on the wall. A surfeit of sideboards like coffins on legs stood in the passageway. Once a kitchen range had warmed the place with its glow, but it had long since subsided into a heap of scrap iron in the corner. Nobody got up very early to light a fire in the sitting room. It's so beautiful and so vivid and so awful, the house. <laughs> it was really awful. <laughs> it's so awful. And there you are, you know, you're a rock star really at that point already. And yeah. Um, but this is the truth. You're living in a very damp, friendless place. And the description of the society of, of your group at that moment is painful, of course. It was It was painful. It was yeah. painful. But there yeah. you are, you know, these things. We get over it. You know? Oh, I know. But it's amazing. But they're also beautiful. I mean, the, the Temple Cottage at the beginning with the climbers and, and the musicians and and the children, it, well, it's, yeah. it's immortalized on the cover, visually on the cover of yeah. A Man's Beautiful Daughter, which, of course, 
my friends and I all stared at, you know, just like yeah. fascinated trying to understand, yeah. you know, what is this society? What is this world? Yeah. And uh, we couldn't be sure if it wasn't opposed for no, them. No, it wasn't. And no, but that's, but, you know, I intuited that. Of course, we all did. And, yeah. and, and you know that too from your own audience at the time. You knew that we yeah. all were entranced by that and mystified. Yeah. Um, but it's a mystifying society. And I think that's another wonderful thing that you describe is how it was mystifying to you too in many ways. Is that yeah. yeah. And it still hangs. I sometimes, I, I, I live in Devon and I go down to the river. I take the dog down to the river every day and I see a swan on the water and, and it comes back with that all that all that sort of magic somehow. And it's like the image separates out from the world I live in and it just it just takes you back into the way that we saw it. And I, I just I sometimes wonder, you know, did did something happen in your brain that it enabled enables this to happen? Because it's 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 kinda of like magic and it's still there. And I think that was the that was the really great thing about writing it, because it was trying to put the words to those things which are so live in me that it's like they're still part of my life and not just not just something I go back to because, oh, I want to sound clever, or but because I live with them. Absolutely. Well, they come alive on the page so, so it, clearly, so clearly. I mean, the Roman camps do and then that house in, and situation in Wales and then the Chelsea Hotel, your description is... I mean, I've read many, many descriptions of Chelsea Hotel, of course, because that one was not particular to your group, but to so many that passed through and everybody sure. felt yeah. the need to describe it. But yours makes it real to me in a way that I, you know, it's not just the mythology of it and the glamour, although you don't shy away from the glamour, but, you, but I really feel what it was to be in that space and to share it. And then the beautiful description of Glen Rowe, where it's a communal life, but it's so interesting to me how that comes at the end of the story, really, where the communi- the communality of the of the band has dissolved in a lot of ways, as I understand yeah. it. Yeah. And yet that seems to be the moment that you take up what we what we from the outside might describe as communal living. And that tells you something already, you know, the fact that 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 we made it well, I never did. I mean I never I never identified that as a commune. And I was kind of horrified when anyone said it was. But nevertheless, Robin Robin called it a commune. And the very fact of putting that formal name, sort of categorizing it and making it a fixed thing, you know, with an organization was so alien to everything that I thought the string band was about. Exactly. Which again explained a lot to me about experiences that people have had in communal groups and communal living that I've, I have never been in that situation, but I've read and heard. And, and it was more particular to your generation in many ways, the experiment. But it's so interesting because what you described in the, some of the earlier houses in the Temple Cottage of that sort of accidental commune or a commune through personality of the woman who sets it up, and then of your idyllic to me, image in Roman camps with Mike and the two of you very happy yeah. for a time in a beautiful image. And then the sort of labored effort in Wales uh, with the artistic commune. And then this much more typical situation, really, of Glen Rowe, of, of what we think of as a commune, where you have a set of houses and fluid relationships and uh, 
people arriving and being uh, drawn in and then leaving again. It's, but, but that is, to me, the only, that's the one that has the most sadness to it in many ways. Yeah, and, and I was thinking about it the other day because someone got in touch with me the other day who'd lived there. And I do find it a very sad time for myself. I mean, I didn't feel sad. I mean, no, I did, really didn't feel sad at the time. But looking back on it, I find it sad because I think that we failed to see what was good about each other. And that's, that's I don't really, I don't do regretting because I don't see the point. But when this person got in touch with me, I thought, I wish I knew you. I wish I had known you as a person. I wish I had tried to know. And, and that's, and maybe that's because of that sort of forced being forced into a commune there is no organic relationship between you you know and so in a way you close the door on organic those the, the way a relationship will develop of its own volition of its own likings and dislikings and in a sequence of things happening you're suddenly there right you are a commune you must live together you must and and that was just horrid you know horrid and what a loss what a loss of all those wonderful things that could have happened or could have come out of it, because I think it, I think it turned, it turned us to the worst of us in a way, or certainly not, not the best. Then, you yeah, know? that's remarkable. And, and you, so you're describing it now. I, I'm, I'm hearing very clearly as also a situation where it was regimented and there were rules and there was a kind of an image, maybe imposed by Robin or, or however it developed, of what it should be rather than yeah. acknowledging what it what was, what, yeah. what it was and what was emerging organically. I mean, in the book, obviously, I don't think this was a, a plan of yours. It's obviously the story, but, but by the time we get to that story of, the, of Glen Rowe, you've given us glimpses of truly idyllic communal life in, sure. in earlier situations. Definitely. That emerged organically. And, and some of that could be. It didn't mean it had entirely gone away. And of course, there were wonderful times at Glen Rowe. It wasn't all dreadful and... And there are some times when we would be together or we'd do stuff together or, or separately or individual. I mean, walking on the hills there was, was an absolute bliss. You know, it was in the Scottish hillsides and there was a lake and, and then the, the, the canoeing when we went, where I said, I think that is in the book where Robin went, we went canoeing on the lake. I mean, there were some very happy times at Glen Road. But when you put it all together, I, I'm more aware of what we lost than what we gained from it. Yeah, which brings me also to Scientology, if you don't mind discussing it at all. I know that's awkward, but you, again, your book is very courageous in many ways, and I feel broaching that subject is one of them, because as you say, it might even be in a footnote, but you definitely mentioned that it isn't easy to speak out about it, because there's retribution, like it's very real. Yeah. And I know how, how that is. But uh, again, you give me answers to questions I've always had about not just about the incredible string dance situation with Scientology, but about Scientology in general, because, of course, I've known musicians who have come into contact with this, too, and it's everywhere in the entertainment world. But that, too, feels like a moment where rules are introduced from the outsider, images of, of, of what should be according to a set of uh, precepts that don't, that don't match necessarily what's developing organically and start to distort relationships and ideas but if I could just ask you specifically about one thing, because you write so beautifully about licorice, and, but she's the one, of course, who's first drawn to Scientology. Yeah. And there's something you say about it where you say, 
it confirmed to her, and I'm alighting a little bit of this sentence, but it confirmed to her her superiority yeah. in describing what it offered. Yeah, I think so. And that explains to me a lot of what its appeal is to certain people. Yeah. And the way that they play on, on uh, entertainers' insecurities and needs and egos. Yeah. It's, a, it's a remarkable statement because you're not, you don't condemn liquors on the other, on the contrary, you have this beautiful portrait of her. And I just wondered if you wanted to talk about that at all. It's an entire chapter of the book. It comes late in the book. But it's a kind of, I found it just a, a beautiful, loving portrait of another person who remains a mystery in some ways, yeah. but also very close. And that's another thing. I mean, certain, certain things have happened since I wrote the book, which has kind of interested me because I thought that I would write it and that would, I'd close it and that's it. That's finished. That's done now. I've, and that hasn't been like that at all. It's like the book has opened opened me again, you know, not just not just what happened, but opened the person that I sort of put a lid on. Mm. And and part of that is is that thing with licorice because I didn't know that I missed her. But in a way, now I missed her. Now again it's like another of those those things that, that went lost that I could have had and went lost, you know. And um because you're so close. Well you know what it's like you you'll be the band. You know how your lives just mesh, don't they? You know, you can't, it's not choice. And they don't have to be people that you get on with. But you live so close that, that it's almost more close than family almost because you have kind of very few secrets. Well, you have you have separate lives and yet you also are in this intense closeness. And when you perform, then you are close. You're close, close, close. And, and to have that with somebody and then it just goes, because it's different with Mike and Robin, because they're there. And although I will never know the relationship with them, because they probably wouldn't be willing, at least at least I could. At least I could turn up on Robin's doorstep and knock at the door and say, hi, Robin, I'd really like to talk about this. And might get the door shut in my face, but at least I could try. Whereas with licorice, I can't do that. I can't. I don't know. As far as I'm concerned, she's not there. And I don't mind how people define that, not there. She's not there. And I I miss her in a way, um, which is a bit odd, you know, um, because it just seems odd. But I think that's because of this sort of feeling of something that disappeared, you know? Yes, absolutely. It's a particular kind of love, maybe. Um, yeah. That... I think it is. I think it is. And I think because it... It's probably like any, probably like anybody will know that if you love somebody and then and they're snatched away from you, particularly if there's no possibility, you don't even see them. They don't even, you don't even see a photograph of them one day and say, this old lady and they say, oh, well, they, it's so-and-so. But when they just disappear, that there is that feeling of, of your life suddenly having, part of your life having stopped. And of course you want it back. Even if she, even if she was if she was alive now, even if she was really horrible, at least at least she'd be there. You know, at least I would have that chance to sort of my life would have continued. That thread would have continued, but it just broke. It's very moving. I find your uh, I'll read just one physical description you give of her that I find so beautiful. It's from that chapter, and this is the subheading above it is fairy footsteps, and you say though never thin or wraith like. She often seemed to flutter and glide, consciously graceful, quiet and light on her muddy feet. 
You can't keep feet white and hands pale when trying to sense the earth's vibrations as bare feet touch the soil. That's just found really beautiful. And but that's liquid. That is yeah. that is that is her, and I still see it in her. I still feel that also that that wonderful quality. You know that um, that fairy like that amorphous that that not not entirely human quality. And I think she cultivated that, but I don't think she, she had it. She just had it. Absolutely. But then the, the, that her feet are dirty is... And that's the human bit. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and to me also, it's the part that, that is maybe left out of a lot of stories about women from, from the entertainment world or from music or from... Muse, got, you know, yeah. muses and odalisks and, and handmaidens. We don't, <laughs> we don't, we're not privy to their dirty feet all the time. And, and I think that's part of the, but, that that's was part, part of, of the charm of Lick because she never, she, when I knew her, I don't know what happened after, but when I knew her in those years that, that I wrote the memoirs about, she would have been the last person to worry about dirty feet. I mean, her nails, I mean, mine, mine were never great, but hers were worse. <laughs> And I noticed that because you notice that when people play instruments, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yes. And when you're traveling and living together, it's very yeah. physical. It's a very, yes, very, it's very physical, yeah. very physical close contact. Yeah. Absolutely. But she never would have minded. She never. She was completely unabashed yeah. in a way that I never. I was that much more repressed than she was. But um, she was just. Yeah, she was just absolutely like um like an open open book, you know, open person. You know, it's almost like the conventions just didn't really apply. You know, they weren't even acknowledged. Almost, it's difficult to describe it. But and and yet, she was the one who entered Scientology and drew and drew the others in. And so, it, it makes intuitive sense to me again that the one who is the least conventional in some ways or in many ways is also prey to, to that yeah. very, very tight set of conventions that enters through Scientology of literal lists of rules. And, you, you know, you describe the Xerox pages uh, is a very vivid kind of feeling of like you've literally been given a script, you're handed a script. Yeah. So it's a kind of like she was free of convention and yet there was this other kind of convention that really comes clamping down. But I think you say, I think you, yeah, I think I read something that you'd said or written or something where you said that when you've got that complete freedom, it's a scary place to live. Mm -hmm. And I suppose the difference for someone like Lick was that before the, the band was so financially viable, you know, before you, you have to, you have to comply with certain things in order to make a living, in order to stay alive. You've got to stay within certain rules, you know? Um, whether it's just going down and signing on at the unemployment or whatever, but certain things you have to do in order to keep a life going. When you don't have to do that, when you can just your life just goes and you don't have to worry about how it happens or why it happens, it just sort of happens, then of course you do have the complete freedom. And suddenly all those all those nice fences, which are also protective, are removed. And then when you find yourself floating in the void, it's not the easiest place to live. You know, we all want to hang on to something. If you're the balloon uh, or the flat or the cloud comes to that, if you're the little cloud, you know, yeah. really lovely. On the other hand, 
maybe quite like to have that string that ties you to the ground a little bit, you know? Yeah. Um, and just the stress, you know, just the stress of the, of the work and all that stuff. More than that, the entire freedom is a, is a, is a hard place to live in. Yeah, mm. wonderful, but, it, you know, it has its own problems. Mm. That explains so much of, of uh, the rock star lifestyle and what happens uh, when the fences are all removed, as you say. Mm. Through, well, just through, through means, really, just because once you have the money and the freedom to, that kind of freedom, and it can obviously very disorienting place that lots of people respond to really, really terribly. Um, yeah. Which, which, you know, there's, there's another, there's another thing I want to um, note about your book, which is this wonderful sort of offstage rock star lifestyle that's going on and, and, and rock stars that pass through. There's a little bit of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead in, in your book of <laughs> we're with you. There's Nico passing by and Joan Baez <laughs> sliding you and, you know, Nick Drake uh, saying hello and Sandy Denny and Vashti Bunyan showing up uh, with her caravan. And, and then it, I live in Boston. So the section where you actually enter the Fort Hill commune uh, with Jim Queskin was amazing to me because that is quite a mythic and scary physical place in our, in our, in our location uh, because that was a, a commune, still is actually. I don't know that if you know that. Mm-hmm. And um, like Scientology, people who have uh, left that and written about it have, have suffered some consequences at times. So it, ha- it carries a kind of a, an aura of, oh, a, of a vague threat to some degree. But yeah, it's still there, uh, right where you oh, stay. Yeah. yeah, the house is still there. And there's still a stone wall in front of it. I don't, know if you, I don't know if that was built yet when you were there. I don't remember that. They built that for fear or for out of paranoia at one moment. But that happens, and Keith Moon shows up. I mean, it's just, it's kind of a fantastic parade of maybe the usual 60s rock memoir characters, but seen from an entirely different point of view as usual, which yeah. is, you know, your, your very real presence and earthy, muddy feet. I'd never tried to be there. I think that's the point in a way, because I'd never wanted that life or never tried to get that life. I'd never been someone on the outside thinking, oh, my God, I'd love to meet a pop star. I never wanted to meet a pop star. And when I did meet one, it didn't really make any difference because I was meeting them in an environment where everyone was just being what they were. And so it was just it was just the order of the day. It was just like. I, I go out in the street today, I'll meet the next door neighbour or I'll meet, you know, some chap down the town or whatever. And it was just like that. It was just so incidental. Mm-hmm. And that's really, really funny, you know, looking back. Yeah. And I, I mean, I know the feeling in that I haven't travelled in circles quite like that, but musicians are the same that way always. You meet each other through the same circumstances. Yeah. And well, I meet you. I mean, yeah. I, was, I, was, I was terrified. I mean, I'd really... <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm really not so really really nervous, you know, because um, I thought, oh my god, I won't be able to cope, and you know, so cutting edge and so, oh, so clever, and, <laughs> and, and yet then I meet you, and it's just yeah. like oh, someone, some nice guy I can talk to, and that's yeah, I, 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 well, yeah, I'm, I, and, and I'm hardly cutting edge anyway, but but I but I appreciate that. Well, to there me, a, there's always there's it's always the anxiety of the new. I want to ask one question about that, those great scenes that happen, which is about Laurel Canyon, because this, again, comes at the end, and it comes at a, a very dramatic moment for you in your own story, emotional story, yeah. and of leaving the band and 
so you're you're flown into LA wearing oh, that fantastic you. coat. Oh, it um, was wonderful. I can't believe you left the coat when you when you left. Yeah, I'm, and that that was a bit silly, really, but it just didn't seem to matter. It didn't seem to matter. It was just walking away from it all, you know. And it's no use. It's the old Timothy. Oh, yeah, uh, Timothy Leary. Timothy Leary. I've read Timothy Leary. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't put um, it in the book. Uh, hold on tightly, because it was much quoted, just like they quote Nietzsche. You know what mm. makes what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Uh, quoting Timothy Leary, hold on tightly, let go lightly. Mm. And th these something little phrases kind of hang in your consciousness. And that's one that's hung in mine, you know, or well, both of those have. Um, but that idea of while you're doing something, really go for it and do it. And, and then then when it stops, it stops and you just let go. Hmm. I mean, I think that's wisdom or enlightenment of some kind. It's, it's something to strive for, for me. Oh, but I don't always do it, but yes, you strive. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did it with the coat. The coat with the lightning bolt? Yes, that's yeah. true, yeah. <laughs> Incredible. Hard to leave a coat like that behind. Oh, I know. I could, yeah. it would, I, I know. I would like to see it, but I don't need to see it again. Yeah. Because I can not only see the picture in my mind, but I can feel it. You know I, you know how that, you, I, I, a lot of people have that memory, but that sort of sensual memory of something, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But also, as you say, embracing your age and, and changing circumstances and what life is at each moment. That coat belonged to another, to a moment. That coat for belonged you. to another. Yeah. What would I? What would I do? Give it yeah. to my granddaughter. You know. Yeah. No, you you literally shed the skin. I mean, you walk away. Yes. yes, it is a shedding skin. Yeah. Which allows you to find another coat. You know, I yeah. think it's really beautiful. So yeah. before I leave that 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 moment though of Laurel Canyon, I just want to ask you because it's hinted out in the book that you walk into the house, it's Joni Mitchell's house, I think, as you're describing. Yeah. And. You have Echoes of Temple Cottage, which takes us all the way back to the opening of the book with that very, to me, still very beautiful and idyllic image of that, of that house yeah. and its chaos and its beauty. But it also feels very different. And I just wonder if I could ask you to describe that a little bit more, because Laurel Canyon also feels very, it's mystifying in the same way, right? Like you don't know who anybody is or where they're coming or going. And yet I feel you at at a remove from it, like you're not willing to dive into it the way you are in Temple Cottage. Couldn't. No, no, you couldn't. Because these people were, I did know. I know it. It's quite interesting, really, because they seemed to me much bigger stars then. And now, now if I, I don't, I don't look at stuff, but I've, things come at me, you know, images come at you through, through various things. And now I sort of see that they weren't, such big stars then as they became they were big stars but I thought they were like mega stars and I think actually they were on the way up I think they hadn't quite got to the mega bit you know although although they were mega enough and I just because I never saw myself in that context I yeah just that I don't belong here you know is that thing and, and I've got nothing to contribute to this when mm. people are always really People, all people around you are, are really good at they're at the top of their game, you know, and they're the best and they're the best in the world at what they do, or at least that's the idea, you know. Then you just, yeah, it's not, it's not, not for me, you know. I was never going to be part of that group, you know. I was never going to be able to just join in, you know. I was always going to be someone who'd come in from the outside and who was 
even more temporary. They didn't speak my language. They, you know, they were American for a start. Um, but <laughs> was it something about was it something about their egos being different? Because of course, I think that too. But I don't think I knew them well enough really to see that. I didn't know them well enough to see that. I didn't. So I mean, I was lucky. I was, again, probably I was lucky. You know, I saw a nice bit. I didn't see the massive raging ego as being horrid. I just saw people who were kind of nice, but they were nice on a level that I wasn't going to be able to meet. And it is true, I think I say it then, by something that's still conscious. I do tend to identify with the with the lady doing the washing up <laughs> because that's something I know and that's something I can do. I feel very competent at washing up, you know. <laughs> 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 well, it's, it's amazing. But I mean, to me, because in the beginning of the book at Temple Cottage, you throw yourself into a world that is alien to you in many ways, but you embrace it and and become a part of it in this very full and beautiful manner. Um, but there I feel you at Laurel Canyon not doing that. And I, I think it, it makes sense to me because I think that world of, I think of that world as very, very different from from Temple Cottage. But superficially, there were resemblances. Yeah, I think it was very different. And I think probably, I think even though, even though I didn't identify or didn't notice the massive egos, nevertheless, that's how they work. You know, you can't, in a way, you can't not notice them instinctively, even though you never have to acknowledge them uh, on, on a formal level. That's, you're sort of aware of it. And and but you know it was it was a whole different world and it was it was LA you know and LA <laughs> was Hollywood and LA and and you know you come from that background of film stars and 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 suddenly they were stars in a way that I didn't see people at witch season I didn't see them as stars they were like mates you know but these were stars and right. I was never going to be one of those stars nor would I have ever wanted to be one of those stars it was just not an aspiration I don't think it's a great life. Didn't think it was then. And um, and so, yes, you feel very distanced in that way. Right. So was Laurel Canyon, was it like Grand Hotel? People come, people uh, go. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, it probably was. <laughs> it probably was, but I never got to know it that closely. <laughs> no, I never did see anyone coming out saying, so. <laughs> I'm going to be alone. <laughs> Whatever it was. <laughs> Maybe um, the Chelsea Hotel was the grand hotel. The Chelsea Hotel was more like that. Yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was certainly as bizarre. In fact, yes, uh, yeah, it was much more bizarre than Grand Hotel, yeah. Yeah, Nico, Nico And equally deathly. <laughs> yes, dirty. And Nico serves as a Garbo character in that world. Yeah. Oh, she never spoke, spoke. I don't know. I didn't really. I heard her speak very little, ever. But none of us spoke very much, so it wasn't so notable. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that, and that's amazing too, because of course you're telling us so much by narrating it. But I think, were I there, I would be mystified by so much of what was going on. And and you allow you include that mystification. I mean, I, I mean, you, yeah. the mystery rather, not mystification. But you you, it was a part of the milieu, right? To yes. to be. To not give things away, to be cool, to be, yes. I mean, you, you describe that really clearly. And uh, with regard also to relationships, you're not going to question where anybody's been or where they're going that's or right. who they're with. And that's all part of it. But that also means you have to be silent a lot of the time, right? Yes. Yeah. And it was really strange because I remember I did notice that at the time. When I left String Band, 
and I had a vocabulary of about a hundred words. <laughs> You know, I had to find all the ordinary words again because I'd spoken so little for the last three years. <laughs> oh, well, well, you managed. <laughs> <laughs> and it was interesting again, you know, because you really had, I really was very aware of having to learn the words again. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good place to end it, Rose, because you you've okay. managed to put words to to these experiences that don't go described. Uh, they don't. I mean, I really, I, I don't know if I can say it another way that just I feel like I have lived a lot of this in my own version of it. Mutatis Mutandis, I'm a very different milieu but, and different music, but some of the feelings I've lived through, but I haven't seen them described the way you do on the page. I mean, you Thank really you very much. bring the language to make it real. Uh, not only to those who I think, who, who I assume to those who have not lived this, but but to me, who I, you know, I feel so much sympathy with so much of what you, what you describe. But you, you do find the language. Oh, thank you. And I, I you know, I, I think it's a remarkable book. So I read it in one sitting, as I said, and then I went back to, you know, skim through in preparation to talk to you. And of course, I just read the whole thing again. Oh, thank you very much. That's the most amazing compliment. Thank you very much. But well, I feel the same about ways of hearing. I've been oh, thank you. I mean, I said this really has changed the way when I go out with the dog. This has changed my world. Oh, my I'm God, not joking. I mean, I'm not. Thank I'm not you. being complimentary. I would no. say that it really has. I now hear different. You know, I listen differently. Oh, I want to tell you the one thing about sounds that Tutankhamun's war trumpet. Ooh. I love. The idea of memory of sound, hearing something from very well long ago and wondering how they heard it, like when Tutankhamun heard his war trumpet yeah. or when a they heard a Viking horn in a museum in, in Copenhagen. Yes. That sound, that memory, it's almost like that is the nearest thing I can get to living then mm. because it's a sens sensory and my ears are probably a bit different and the whole sound environment is different. But... That is an incredible thing. Yes. I, I, now I, I, I'm having much more of that consciousness just walking the dog. You know? Oh, that's beautiful. No, I, I, know, I know just what you mean. Sounds in the environment, pre-recorded history of sounds when they come alive in the present, as nature can, can bring them to you all the time. It's so dramatic. Yeah. Yes, it's in nature too. Yeah. And the, the, the leaves, the rustling of leaves. Mm -hmm. Oh, I just think it's so, I'm so excited by it all. I'm yeah. really excited by it. Yeah, it is. It's an amazing thing. And it's such a gift that we carry around with us all the time. But, yeah. but in some ways, I feel our audio technology ironically isolates us from it sometimes. But sometimes it brings it to us closer. In lockdown, I've been very drawn to some audio documentaries. It's a wonderful Englishman Chris Watson. He was in the band called Cabaret Voltaire, an experimental band in the, in the 80s, early, late 70s, rather, when he was in it. And he's, he's gone on to be a, a, a recordist of nature sounds. Uh, you've probably heard his work on BBC or... But, but he, he makes radio programs that are, I find so moving, especially in this time when we can't travel. Yeah. Because it, it brings sound to me from other yeah. places. It's, it's a version of music. It's really wonderful. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for your kind words, Rose. It's oh, really, thank really you, but thank you yeah. for talking. I've really enjoyed the chat. Thank you very much. It's been oh, a pleasure. It's a pleasure to meet you. You know, the music has meant so much to me, and your book now does so much. Thank you so much. Oh, anytime. So I mean, if you're in Devon, drop in. I will. I hope we get oh, to do. do that kind of thing again. Thank you. I will. Yeah, I'll do. knock on the door. 
Yeah, do. I will be ecstatic. I will be ecstatic, I tell you. Thank you. Well, I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and my door is open to you, always. Okay, thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the MIT Press Podcast. And thank you to Damon and Rose for that wonderful discussion. I'd also like to say thank you to Samantha Doyle, who mixes and edits the podcast, and Kristen Galano, who provided the soundtrack. If you'd like to keep up to date with all the content we'll be producing in 2021, please make sure to subscribe on your platform of choice.